This is Reckonings, where people speak their conscience. I'm Stephanie Lepp, and today I'm talking with Mark Whitaker, the FBI whistleblower in one of the biggest antitrust cases in U.S. history against global food conglomerate Archer Daniels Midland. During the investigation, Whitaker was convicted for embezzlement against ADM, lost his whistleblower immunity, and spent eight and a half years in prison. Whitaker is played by Matt Damon in the 2009 film The Informant and today spreads his story of redemption and second chances. Mark Whitaker, welcome to Reckonings. Thank you, Stephanie. I'm honored to be a part of it. As a young person, did you have any heroes you wanted to be like when you grew up? Yeah, I did. I did. Uh, I mean, I I really enjoyed uh, American presidents. I would say probably Ronald Reagan was my uh, favorite president, but I did admire what it took to become a U.S. president, how much passion it took, and how much they sacrificed to get there. Mm-hmm. So at 32, you were the youngest ever president of the bioproducts division at Archer Daniels Midland. Within three years, you were promoted to corporate vice president, and Fortune magazine claimed you were likely to become the next COO and president. Why do you think you rose through the corporate ranks so quickly? Well, at 32, I would have been seven years out of college. And I'll tell you one thing. I was uh, very ambitious. I would say almost hyper ambitious, maybe to the point where it was even unhealthy. And I was definitely a workaholic through college and also when I started my career. And I think that's why I rose up fairly quickly because everything I did was for work. And other things were sacrificed, for sure. My family was sacrificed. And my work life was definitely off balance. Uh, But I think uh, even though there were sacrifices there, I put so much into my career, I definitely moved up, uh, was moving up very quickly. Mm -hmm. You were an FBI whistleblower in one of the biggest price fixing cases against Archer Daniels Midland. And price fixing was going on well before you got there. How and why did you get involved in price fixing at ADM? Uh, well, first, uh, I'll never forget, I was joined ADM in 1989, and as you mentioned, I was 32 years of age at that time, and I always heard rumors there was a very successful executive, and I didn't quite know what he did, and I would ask some of the other executives in the company, well, what is what is this particular person doing? He said, oh, he's the price fixer, and I said, well, what's that? And he said, well, he helps divisions uh, get their products along with their competitors and form an international cartel and earn hundreds of millions and I think by then they felt like, wow, Mark's with us. Uh, he's very ambitious. He'll do what we ask him to do. Then they came to me, the vice chairman did, uh, who was number two in the company, who I reported to. And he said, Mark, uh, I'm going to give you a $100,000 bonus and 25,000 shares of stock options, which was close to a million dollars on the stock options. And that wasn't unusual to get a bonus like that. That was I was already there two and a half years. So that part itself wasn't unusual. But what was unusual was this that he gave me that at a time there was no performance thing. There was no quarterly earnings reported. There was no new manufacturing plant that just started. So there was really nothing for that performance bonus to be received. Uh, But an hour later, he came back in my office, and then I knew why he gave it to me. He said, Mark, I'm going to assign someone to be your mentor. 
to show you how ADM does business that will make your division, your biotech division, about one and a half billion dollar revenue division. He said it will make it even more profitable than you've ever, ever had and and what you could ever reach. Mm. And he told me who the person's name, his name was Terry Wilson. And I knew then what was happening. the, The price fixer was then assigned to work with me. And I did ask him a few questions. I said, boy, is this legal? And he said, no, it's not legal. But he said, Mark, antitrust laws are on the books since the 1800s. He said, their old laws are outdated. And in a commodity business like ours, you can't survive without doing this. Hmm. So it was clear to me a couple things. One, the CEO, which was his father, was 75 years old at the time. And I thought, well, gosh, I'm in my early 30s. He's in his mid-70s. And if this is the way they're running the company, he knows a lot more about business than I do. I'm only seven years out of college. This really must be the way business is done. And the other thing I thought, he just gave me this bonus. If I don't do this, I'm not going to survive in this company. And this was a quite a, an opportunity when you're in a company where you're 32 and the CEO 75 and the president 69 and you're number four, there's plenty of room to move up. And being as ambitious as I was during that period of life, I thought, you know what? This is a great opportunity, an opportunity of a lifetime, this job. And this may be a flaw, but I'm going to live with this job even with the flaws. How did you feel about price fixing? And how did you justify the fact that you were stealing from people? I would say I justified it the same way that I was told when I asked the questions, that this is the way business is done. Antitrust laws were put together by politicians that never been in business. Everybody does it. You can't survive without it. No one that's involved with fraud wants to feel like, look in the mirror and feel like a fraudster. Right. So you rationalize that it's not a fraud. Hmm. I didn't want to leave that job. So I put in my mind and absorbed those same arguments. Well, this is the way business is done. Yeah. And what ultimately moved you to confess to the FBI was a conversation you had with your wife, Ginger. Uh, Why did you tell her about the price fixing and what happened in that conversation? Well, about seven months later, after I had a mentor signed, uh, Terry Wilson showed me how to do the price fixing. And Ginger was seeing the way that, you know, she was already having conversations even before this conversation with me that I was really becoming obsessed with power, that I was becoming addicted to greed, uh, that I was a workaholic. And I was. So here we are now three years with the company when I started October 89 and now we're November 92, seven months into the price fixing. And Ginger's having this conversation with me and she says, Mark, you never spent any time with the family. You're not the person that I fell in love with in high school. Mm-hmm. You know, I've known you since you were in eighth grade and she was a year behind me in seventh grade. And she said, we grew up in middle class families and, and never was obsessed to these corporate jets and and 13,000 square foot house with an eight car garage and So this conversation really became about that, that I was an addict to greed. Mm. And and then she said, Mark, the thing that bothered her the most was that I would come home from work when I'm not traveling. I'm already traveling a couple weeks a month. And then I come home from work and I get on the phone three or four hours a night. She said, especially the last seven months. Mm. And I said, well, Ginger, I have to get on the phone at night. For one, keep in mind, 90% of my income is from stock options and bonuses. I mean, we live this lifestyle, not from a base salary. We live this lifestyle because of all the stock options I get and all the bonuses I have. And that's why you live in a, in a mansion and, and behind gates and a car garage. And, 
And she said, you know what, Mark, I'd rather have a 2,000 square foot house and two American cars in the driveway and have my husband at home. And then she she started focusing more and more on this night work where I come home from dinner and be on the phone three or four hours in the evening. And I said, well, I have to be on the phone in the evenings, honey, because eight o'clock at night in Decatur, Illinois, where ADM's world headquarters are, or eight o'clock in the morning in Southeast Asia, in Singapore, in South Korea. And then she said, yeah, but, but Mark, why would you be on the phone with every night with Southeast Asia? Who are you talking to? And I said, well, I'm talking to our competitors in the evening. And we're, they assigned a mentor. And I said, he was assigned to me to show me how to do this these last seven months. And we're involved with a price-fixing scheme. Then she asked, she said, well, Mark, what's price-fixing? Here's a stay-at-home mom raising three young children. And I told her, I said, well, it's where we get together our competitors and we fix the ingredients of all these. Uh, basically, your listeners, what they buy in a grocery store, especially if they buy a processed food, like a Kellogg cereal or a beverage or an orange juice or a Coca-Cola or Pepsi, if they look at that ingredient label on the side of that package – Nine times out of ten, at least one of those ingredients were produced by ADM. So I said we were fixing the prices of those ingredients and we're earning an extra billion dollars a year for the company. And I said they've been doing it for 12 years. And she said, well, who pays for this price fixing? And I said, well, and ultimately the company, like a Coca-Cola or Pepsi that buys those ingredients, but they have their margins built in. So they're going to pass that to the consumer. So when someone goes to the grocery store and buys $50 worth of groceries, they're paying an extra 2 or $3 for this price fixing. Every consumer that goes to the grocery store. Yeah. And that's when she quickly said, you mean my grandma that who earns $300 a week on Social Security is paying for this theft for us to live in a mansion with an eight-car garage? And she said, Mark, why would you do this? And I said, well, they've been doing it for 12 years. And I said, if I don't do this, I'm not going to survive in this company. I'm not going to continue to move up. I either have to quit. Or do this. I mean, that's the two choices that I have. Then she quickly said after that, she said, you know what, Mark, I'd rather live in a, I'd rather be homeless than live in a home where illegal activity is occurring. And uh, after about another hour of discussion, and she also went to her study and prayed about it. And I knew if she was going to pray about it, I knew I was in trouble. Wow. Then she came back downstairs from her study and she said, Mark, I've made a decision that you've got to turn yourself in or I'm going to turn you in because we can't live with this and we can't walk away and quit now. There's a $12 billion fraud that's occurred the last 12 years. That's going to continue if we don't stop it. And she was adamant. If you're just joining us, well, that's just silly because this is a podcast and you should really just go back and listen from the very beginning this is Reckonings. My guest is Mark Whitaker, an FBI whistleblower who was then convicted for embezzlement and spent eight and a half years in federal prison. You were an FBI whistleblower for three years, going into work every day, wearing recorders to record your colleagues. What was a typical workday like for you at that time? Well, I had four FBI agents that I would work with, and I'd meet them with at six o'clock in the morning. They shaved my chest, took microphones to my chest. I had a tape recorder uh, with an athletic band around the back of my waist. I had one in a briefcase and one in a notebook. And the FBI always wanted a couple different recorders working at all times just in case one didn't work. Uh, so they shaved my chest, took microphones to my chest, checked the batteries of three different recorders. Then I'd go to work. That'd be six in the morning. Then I'd go to work all day long. Uh, and then I'd meet them. Uh, in the evenings, at least two evenings a week, about six, seven o'clock in the evening, turn over tapes, have debriefings, sometimes till midnight. 
I mean, it became a second job. And I did that every day for almost three years, the longest duration of anybody wear a wire in U.S. history. Wow. Was there ever a close call, you know, with a colleague somewhere where you thought that someone noticed that you had a recorder on you? There were a couple close calls. One, for example, was in the Irvine Marriott Hotel. Uh, we were on the seventh floor and in a meeting room, just like a boardroom type setting. And so my briefcase started clicking. The, the tape recorder started clicking. Somehow it uh, malfunctioned but to a point where almost, really they should have heard it. Wow. But they were focused on someone riding on the easel how much money we were going to make if we start raising our prices now to this next level. Uh, my tape recorder's clicking, and I opened that briefcase and literally fixed it because they were, even though we're no more than two feet from each other, they were so focused on the dollar amounts that was on that easel, they didn't hear that recorder, and I fixed it, and, and no one noticed. And I, one thing I noticed being a, an informant for three years is that greed blinds you. It blinds you. Mm-hmm. They were so focused on the greed that they didn't see what was two or three feet from them. Wow. So while you were fully cooperating with the FBI to investigate price fixing at ADM, you were simultaneously embezzling money from ADM. At what point in your whistleblowing did you start embezzling money? And how were you rationalizing, on the one hand, cooperating with the FBI, and on the other stealing from ADM? Well, I think how I rationalized it was basically I'm out on this driveway. I'm wearing a wire for two years at that point. I had another year to go. And I'm out on the driveway at three in the morning blowing leaves off with a gas leaf blower off our driveway. Why at three in the morning? Well, I think it's just having a nervous breakdown. I mean, I couldn't sleep. Okay. I, I, I'm wearing a wire for two years. I meet with the FBI till midnight. I got to be back with them again at six in the morning. I kept thinking about what are these guys going to do when they learn I'm wearing a wire against them, that they're going to go to prison because of me. Often the FBI would tell me, Mark, if these guys catch you, they'll kill you. Oh. So, I mean, this was dangerous stuff. They would tell me that often when they wired me up. And so here I am with this driveway at two or three in the morning, horrific thunderstorm. I got the same shirt on and my tie with the microphone still taped to my chest, the tape recorder still attached to my back. And, and, and Ginger hears this gas leak blower at three in the morning. She comes out to the driveway and she says, Mark, come back to the house and come back to the family. She said, this is crazy. It's three in the morning. You got to meet the FBI at six. I said, I know I got to meet them at six. I meet them at six every day the last two years. I know what I got to do. She said, well, she said, more importantly, Mark, you need God in your life. And I said, well, why would I need God? It's just been shared and been announced that I'm going to be the next president of ADM. I'm going from number four executive from a divisional president to company president to number two. And she said, boy, Mark, you've got to be delusional. Surely you don't think that's going to be true, do you? I said, yeah, I'm going to be the number two in the company. It's already planned. She says, yeah, Mark, but they don't know you're the informant. CEO's been there for 30 plus years. He owns this town. They're going to come after you with everything. And that's when the uh, embezzlement really uh, kicked in. And, and she walked back in the house. I started thinking, boy, I was obsessed with that job. I couldn't imagine life without it. I couldn't imagine life, especially without that compensation. So that's when I made a decision that it would take me a few years to get back on my feet. So I thought, well, they're not going to give me a golden parachute. So I'm going to have to write my own severance pay. I'm going to basically have to steal my own severance. And then I started thinking, well, the FBI, how would they feel? And I'm thinking, gosh. The FBI told me, they said, Mark, if these guys catch you, they'll kill you. So now I've risked my life for the FBI for all these years wearing a wire. They, they're forcing me to get fired from my job because of wearing a wire. 
I thought, well, gosh, ADM's stealing a billion dollars a year for 12 years in a row, and they expect me to be part of it. I thought, well, you know what? I deserve to do this. I, I deserve this severance package. And I wrote several checks that added up to five checks that added up to nine and a half million dollars, which would give me a few years to get back on my feet and to live that same lifestyle that I felt that I deserved back then. And in reality, they did not do any. I did that happen over the last year that I'd worked with them and they never could do anything about it. Besides one of the executives above me said, slow down, you're getting a little greedy. That's all he could say. But they couldn't do anything about it because they couldn't turn me in. They're involved with a bigger fraud. Right, right. Before you became a whistleblower, you were making seven figures, lived in a mansion, sent your kids to private schools. Did you feel satisfied with the wealth that you had? You know, I, I really didn't. Uh, and I, one thing I learned was, and there were some years that it, like it's, it would top $3 million. And I looked back and I thought, well, how much is enough? I think I could have got to the level of Bill Gates and it wouldn't have been enough. I, I I just I with every promotion and with every set of stock options and with every new corporate jet that the company got that I got access to, it just seemed like I always just wanted the next big thing, thinking that money and materialism was going to fill that void in my heart. If you're really focusing on money and things, you're never going to be satisfied because it's never going to be enough mm-hmm. if that's how you're trying to fill that void. Mm-hmm. And I live that so I can realistically say I live that and never had that peace and contentment that, wow, now it's enough. Mm -hmm. It was never enough. Is there a particular instance throughout your whole journey that you feel especially regretful about? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The FBI were still so, so, so supportive, even with the nine and a half million dollar fraud. They feel as greedy as I was for, for money. They were just as greedy for evidence and that they sacrificed my mental well-being by taking me undercover too long. Hmm. I had full immunity for wearing a wire. And then the nine and a half million dollar fraud lost that immunity. And they still got me a six month offer, an opportunity for six months in prison. And I threw that in a trash can and fired that lawyer and said I would never go to prison for six months, only to fight that case for three years and go for eight and a half years instead. (sighs) But I think the thing I for sure that I regret the most is what my family went through. Uh, the divorce rate for people that are incarcerated are 78% divorce rate. And the divorce rate, if you serve five years and longer, some statistics show 99% wow. divorce rate. And my wife and I are married 36 years this year. Wow, congratulations. Thank you. And that's after three years of undercover and nine years of prison. When, and my wife moved to three different states to live next to three different prisons and visited me 20 hours a weekend for eight and a half years with my children. Wow. I still don't forget the hell that I put my family through Mm -hmm. and the fact that they stayed with me during times that most people would have walked away. Mm -hmm, Yeah. Yeah. So you have gone through quite an odyssey operating as an FBI informant for three years, then being convicted for embezzlement, losing your immunity status and spending eight and a half years in federal prison. Before you went into prison, you made two suicide attempts. And while you were in prison, you discovered faith. What do you think would have happened if Ginger hadn't forced you to go to the police? Where do you think you would be today? I think the track that I was actually looking back, the track that I was on at ADM, if, if that had not happened, 
and that discussion with my wife had not happened in November of 92, and I was still at ADM, I, I don't believe our family would have survived it. That probably would have led to a divorce. Mm. You know, the workaholism and, and, the, and the egoism and the narcissism and all about greed and power. This happening probably saved our marriage and our family. Wow. And my wife, another question she gets asked is the question gets asked, well, what would have happened if your husband got the six month sentence? All he had to do was sign it. Right. And he would have been six months. Right. And my wife says, well, that's a Martha Stewart sentence. He would have came out the same man he would in. He wouldn't mm -hmm. have changed mm -hmm. with a six month sentence. Mm -hmm. You know, God gave him exactly what he needed, which was eight and a half years mm. in prison. But I think the brokenness of an eight and a half year sentence and the brokenness after two suicide attempts, I think the brokenness of that brought me to the end of myself that I was willing to listen to him because, man, I was looking for hope. Yeah. I was out of hope. Yeah. Yeah. The, the sad part about that is what my family had to go through for me to have a net gain and become a better person. Mm -hmm. In this case, really a man of faith and how that's changed me and gave me purpose in my life. It's a shame what my family had to go through because mm -hmm. they, they did not deserve to go through that for me to be a better person. Mm -hmm. And the fact they stayed with me is, is a miracle of God. Yeah. Do you feel like you've forgiven yourself? Um, I feel like I've healed a lot over the years, but I, I don't think I will ever forgive myself what I put my, what I put my family through. Mm. I don't think I will ever completely forgive myself. Mm. And I thank God every day that my family forgave me because mm -hmm. I don't know how they did it. Mm -hmm. I don't know how they could. Mm -hmm. Only God touching their hearts. It's the only way they could. And no, just some very poor decisions all along the way that, boy, it's a miracle of God. You're listening to Reckonings. I'm talking with Mark Whitaker, the highest level corporate executive in U.S. history to become an FBI whistleblower. Whitaker was then convicted for embezzlement and spent eight and a half years in prison. You and Ginger have three kids. How have they been affected by your whistleblowing and time in prison? I tell you, I think our, our children are now age 29 to age 37. And I look back how our kids fared. Our, you know, our youngest son, who was for sure harder on him than the older two, he was six when I went undercover, six years old, first grade. He was 12 in seventh grade when I went to federal prison. And he was 21 and a junior in college when I got out. Wow. From age six to age 21, mm. this case consumed him. And I look back now and I look where they're at today. And one of the common things we hear from the three of them is this, is that the only marriage they could ever imagine having is a marriage like their parents. Oh, wow. And seeing them going through all that and having them feel that way. Yeah. I think through example, they learned about marriage and commitment and family commitment because they saw family go through thick and thin and survive it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. FBI agents who worked with you and authors who wrote about your story have argued that you should receive a full pardon from the White House for your whistleblowing. The FBI supervisor on your case, Dean Paisley, said that 
had it not been for the fraud conviction, you would be a national hero. Do you feel you've gotten the pardon that you deserve? Personally, a pardon doesn't matter to me at all. I mean, I have a wonderful job. I have a wonderful career. My family stayed with me. A pardon wouldn't change my life. But I will say this, the support of those agents, as much as I hurt them and as much as I've done to them, does mean a lot to me. The fact that they forgive me and they think enough of me to be a big cheerleader and, and really endorse me, uh, that does mean a lot to me. And I'm, I'm, I'm very humbled by that because I don't feel I deserve that. Mm-hmm. And even the victims of the case, you know, the victims, the food companies buying these ingredients from ADM that was being stolen from, several of them, 11 of them got together and took care of my family for the nine years I was in prison. Wow. They put a trust fund together. Uh, and, and took care of my family. That's a miracle. As far as I'm concerned, it's a miracle of God. These are the people I was stealing from. Yeah. They were so appreciative. They said, well, let's take care of this family for nine years while his family's suffering. Wow. That's remarkable. Yeah. To me, that's a miracle. What do you think might have inspired you to take the high road from the very beginning and not have ever gotten involved in price fixing? I wish I would have had someone. I wish... I wish I would have had someone that would, the wisdom that I have at age 58, what I've learned, what's important in life. I wish I knew someone like that during that time as an ADM. I probably wouldn't even stay at ADM. Mm-hmm. I look at ADM executives, the four of us, the four executives that went to prison in WorldCom, the four executives that went to prison in Enron. Already all of us, all three of those companies, wealthy executives. Why did we overreach to try to get so much more? when we already had so much. And I think all 12 of us went to prison from all three of those companies, ADM, Enron, and WorldCom, because of narcissism. Uh, we were such selfish leadership, not servant leadership, and we felt like we deserved everything we got. We felt like the laws are for the little people. And if I had to put in one word what we went to prison for, I would say for narcissism. Hmm. And I would have loved to have someone with some wisdom that I really respected uh, as a mentor during that period of my life. Mm-hmm. If you could say anything to young business executives who are climbing the same corporate ladder you were climbing and who are experiencing the same pressures you experienced, what would you say? I would tell them this. Uh, look, if, if, if that's what you're shooting for, title, power, uh, materialism, a big house, if you think that's how you define your life, then you're going to be very disappointed because there's always going to be somebody ahead of you. Mm. Go for a life of significance more than the life of success, the way the world defines success. I was doing that job at ADM in the seven years before that at another company because I was so well compensated. I didn't really appreciate the products that much. I wouldn't really have that much passion for the product. Some of those products weren't even very good for you. But boy, looking back now, it's so more important. And I tell you, go for life of significance. Mm-hmm. That's so much more important than saying how much money I made. Mark Whitaker, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Well, pleasure talking to you, Stephanie. It's great to be on the show and, uh, and I wish you the very best. Mark Whitaker is the highest level corporate executive in U.S. history to become an FBI whistleblower. Today, he spreads his story of redemption and second chances. I'm Stephanie Lepp, and you've been listening to Reckonings. Reckonings.